what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. Sometimes it feels like I just can't slow down. I rush all day while I work, and then I rush to fit in a walk, make dinner, fold the laundry, run to the store. My internal pace is frenetic, but so is my external pace. I'm speeding around the house, bumping my hips into corners because I take them too fast. Sometimes Sean says to me, Tara, slow down. I'm sure you experience something similar, or you have in the past. Rushed is perhaps the perfect word to describe life in the 21st century. But why are we so busy? Why do we end up compressing more work, more play, more family, more friends into the same amount of time we have each day? We can say that it's technology. We feel compelled to move at the pace of the software we use. Sure, that's part of it. We can say that it's our 21st century expectations. We're trying to have it all when all has come to mean so much. And yeah, that's part of it too. We might even say that our sense of busyness is due to the breakneck speed of the daily news, whether that's world events, domestic politics, Wall Street, or Silicon Valley. Definitely a contributing factor. But what if we're busy, so squeezed, because the system is designed to produce that result? What if the system works according to design? I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy with your humanity intact. Now, over the last seven episodes, we've been exploring the intersection of time and money, inspired by Ben Franklin's aphorism, time is money. We've looked at how our conception of money is formed, how technology influences both time and money, and how our ideas of work have evolved over time. Today, I want to wrap things up by taking a closer look at busyness, and specifically how busyness often plays out in how we build our businesses or slash careers, a challenge I call the squeeze. If you've ever felt like, despite all your best efforts, your business revenue has stagnated somewhere you don't want it to be, and you just can't work any harder to get ahead, you've felt the squeeze. Honestly, I don't know any business owner who hasn't, and I know plenty of business owners that find themselves in a perpetual state of being squeezed by their businesses, ebbing and flowing through states of excitement, growth, stagnation, and exhaustion. Why does this happen? Why do we squeeze our work and our lives in pursuit of greater returns or more stability? There are some surface level answers to these questions, technology, media, expectations. But those answers don't address why making adjustments to how we interact with those factors doesn't actually lead to feeling less squeezed. The economist John Maynard Keatons put it this way, we've been trained too long to strive and not to enjoy. One form that training has taken is the regular reminder that time is money. And so we strive to squeeze as much money-making work into our days as possible. We hustle and manage our time so that every minute is filled with something productive, and that something is done as efficiently as possible. 
We live in the accumulated results of over 200 years of industrialization, technological revolution, financialization, and for-profit data mining. Busyness is the unsurprising result of constant optimization. Fast and efficient are the guiding values of that optimization. But what if, just maybe, we chose different values to optimize for? How would your relationship to time, tasks, and money shift? How would your needs evolve? Keynes also draws a distinction between the two different kinds of needs we work to fill. As he sees it, there are the genuine needs of life. And the way I read it, these needs can include comforts beyond subsistence. And then there are the needs that arise because we want more than others have. We want to feel like we're rising up the social order. It's these so-called needs that are insatiable, that keep us striving to accumulate more and more. In this, I hear echoes of a question that writer and activist Adrian Marie Brown asks, are you satisfiable? To me, this means not only having enough, but the practice of satisfaction itself, the slow, deep breath of gratitude and pleasure. Do you know that you are enough, that you do enough? Or are you always looking for more proof? I know how I answer those questions, and my answers are not great. I also heard this echoed by novelist Margaret Atwood on the Ezra Klein show last week. She said that researchers in both neuroscience and social psychology are increasingly finding that happiness is tied to our perception of whether we're better off than others around us. Now, I think it's really tempting to take on a kind of moral fatalism as we consider what makes striving for more such a bellwether of happiness and satisfaction. Is this just how we're wired? Maybe this is just the way it is. Maybe insatiable ambition is good for me. But to do this ignores another aspect of our psychology, our deep and abiding love of incentives. And the incentives that keep us striving rather than enjoying are many. A couple of months ago, I was exchanging text messages with Kate Strathman, and we were both celebrating the big decisions that we've made and how we're doing business now. We were both playfully disgusted with ourselves. Kate said, why didn't we figure this out sooner? And I responded, I have no idea. Just want to shout from the rooftop, make bigger deals. Stop trying to make tiny clients, tiny offers, tiny audiences happen. Just sell bigger stuff to fewer people and relax. Bigger deals, fewer customers. It really is the key. Now, this does not mean that I think everyone should start working one-on-one as a coach or consultant. I don't, and Kate doesn't either. What I'm really trying to say is that squeezing in more and more, whether we're talking labor hours, customers, or offers, is always going to lead to more stress, not less. The squeeze is not a ticket to greater happiness or satisfaction. It's not even a ticket to earning more. Yet few of us can ignore the siren song of the squeeze. So again, I ask, why? Before I try to answer that question, let's take a look at precisely how the squeeze so often plays out in a small business. Let's imagine that you started your business with a conservative revenue target, maybe $80,000, enough to cover your old salary and a bit more for wiggle room. 
Now, there are lots of ways you can get to $80,000 in revenue over 12 months. You could get eight $10,000 consulting contracts or offer a service to 12 clients at $560 per month, or you could create a $1,000 course and sell it to 80 people. Once you decide what you'll sell and who you'll sell it to to reach your target, you start to consider your strategy for actually making it happen. What are you going to do to find the people you want to sell to? What goes into actually delivering the product or service? How are you going to set it all up? In the beginning, there's a good bit of trial and error. You're figuring a bunch of stuff out on the fly. Some days it's stressful, other days it's exciting. Eventually, you get everything worked out and you're hitting your revenue target. You've determined exactly what you need to do and how that impacts your resources like time, money, energy, and mental bandwidth. Along the way, you've picked up efficiencies. It doesn't take you nearly as long to do that work as it used to. So you can actually squeeze the time it takes you to run your business into a smaller container. Maybe you were working 50 hours per week and now you're down to under 40. That's great. But what happens next? Well, you realize that you're working less, and since time is money, you decide you can fit in more work, more money-making opportunities. You take on an extra client, or close an additional consulting deal, or add in another marketing channel to your workload. Now you're back up to 50 hours per week, but you're now generating more than $80,000 per year in revenue, and it seems like a good trade-off. Well, the same thing happens again. Over time, you pick up a few more efficiencies, a little more leverage, and it doesn't take you 50 hours a week anymore. You're back down to under 40, making more money than you originally hoped for and seeing lots of potential for future growth. So what do you do? It might seem like the obvious choice would be to take the money and run away with the extra time. That's the dream, right? But that's not what most people do. Most people squeeze in even more work in the hopes of generating even more revenue. And each time we realize greater efficiency and then rush to squeeze in more work to take advantage of that idle time, we're intensifying the labor of each hour. Think of it this way. Each hour you have is like a balloon. When you blow into the balloon, it starts to fill up. The pressure builds inside the balloon as you literally compress more and more air molecules into the container of latex. At first, the balloon stretches and accommodates all those new air molecules easily. But if you keep blowing, the latex starts to reach its capacity for stretching. As the pressure inside the balloon continues to increase, the likelihood that the structural integrity of the balloon will fail goes up. Eventually, you try to squeeze in one too many air molecules and the balloon is no more. The intensity of the pressure inside the balloon just got to be too much. Now, think again of your time. How close are you to losing a structural integrity? How much pressure has built up inside each hour of your day? And are you still trying to squeeze more in? This process has a name. It's called work intensification. Remember when we met Frederick Winslow Taylor, the creator of scientific management? Taylor was the one who thought the workers he managed should work harder. 
So we studied their jobs and workflows, devised faster ways to do things, and set new standards for the length of time it would take to do each type of job. The workers were now doing the same amount of work in less time. Did that mean they could be sent home when they completed their original amount of work for the same pay? Of course not. Their work intensified. Now they were responsible for producing more in the same amount of time they'd always worked. Ford built on Taylor's strategy. Now, not only were workflows optimized, but the individual tasks in a workflow were optimized. A job was broken down into the smallest, simplest, fastest task, and each task was given to a different worker. That's the assembly line. Now, an individual's daily work not only increased in intensity, but in banality. Both Taylorism and Fordism treated people like machines, tools for the production of more and more stuff at cheaper and cheaper prices. Time is money, after all, and if a worker's time could be managed just so, then you could eke out the most possible money in the least amount of time. This is the world we were all born into, the system that's guided us from kindergarten to middle school to college to our careers. It's a system of incentives that teaches us to view the world as full of the raw material for manufacturing profit. It's a structure that incentivizes us to squeeze more money-making, power-grabbing opportunities into our days. To look at our time as a commodity that can be sold off or an investment that can be leveraged for ever greater returns. Our economic incentives have even subverted social, religious, and ethical values. Those values, once the building blocks of our communities, have been hijacked and redirected to fit the economic incentive. This way of life is so integrated into the way we think that it seems as if there is no other alternative. Mark Fisher, who dubbed this capitalist realism, argues that this economic system has become so absorbed into our present social order that we can't help but see history through its lens. Not only is there no other alternative, all human progress has been leading us to this moment of insatiable production, consumption, and accumulation of wealth. Fisher writes, quote, Capitalist realism has successfully installed a business ontology in which it is simply obvious that everything in society, including healthcare and education, should be run as a business. Now, this extends to every aspect of our lives, so that even when we're working for ourselves, ostensibly making decisions about how we run our businesses based on our own values, we self-manage ourselves until we can't bear the pressure anymore. Fisher continues, quote, what we are dealing with now is a deeper, far more pervasive sense of exhaustion, of cultural and political sterility. We succumb to the exhaustion, not by finding ways to rest, but by resigning ourselves to the way the world is. We continue to squeeze more into our businesses and lives because that seems to be the only way to make it all work. Earlier, I mentioned that one way to escape the squeeze is by making bigger deals, selling to fewer customers at higher prices. That can take shape in all sorts of ways. You might structure your coaching business so that you only work in 10-month packages. Or maybe you have an agency that only works with the kind of clientele that sees the value of your work and has the budget to pay a high monthly fee. 
Or maybe it means that you work with organizations instead of individuals so that you can still reach lots of people, but only worry about closing deals with a few key players each year. There are plenty of ways to de-intensify your workload without sacrificing revenue, but you have to be willing to push back against the incentives baked into our economy. When you hit your target, you have to be willing to accept working less as you gain efficiency instead of rushing to fill those empty hours with more work. Now, I almost want to say it's easier said than done, but I don't actually believe that. I believe this is an easy choice to make. You just have to know that that's the goal you're working toward. You have to realize that the choice is even available because everything in our culture is designed to hide that choice from us. Now, to figure out why opting for less work is so challenging, I went back to Max Weber's Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism. Weber distinguishes capitalism from what he calls economic traditionalism. Economic traditionalism isn't an economic system, but instead a general character of economic relations. Economic traditionalism is characterized by basic structures which allow people to meet their traditional needs. That might mean subsistence farming, local trade economies, or even early free markets. Business development under capitalism, however, isn't actually about needs meeting. It's about acquisition. Acquisition of wealth above and beyond satisfying needs, and with that wealth privately owned by those who have invested to build the business. And also acquisition of stuff, since consumption keeps the machine running. Now, Weber points to the individual entrepreneur, who is not a capitalist per se, but also not a person employed by a capitalist. The entrepreneur invests in raw material of one sort or another, owns the means of producing their product or service, and brings the product or service to market. They recoup their costs, meet their own needs, and hold on to any profit that's generated. The whole endeavor is a sort of closed loop. Weber says it's hard to argue that this kind of business isn't capitalist, or at least made more accessible through capitalist economic and political structures. But he says that it has a traditionalistic character. Sound familiar? It should. If you're running a business of one or a few, doing freelance work or putting together a slash career, this describes your business to a T. Weber explained that this type of business from about the 1600s on hasn't been an exception, but quote, rather the rule with continual interruptions from repeated and increasingly powerful conquests of the capitalistic spirit. Increasingly powerful conquests of the capitalistic spirit. That seems to me to be the answer to the question of why we aren't satisfied with simple business models that generate more than enough with very little work time. Here in the 21st century, we've been exposed either directly or historically to this mounting influence of the capitalist spirit. The potential for massive wealth accumulation seems so tantalizingly close that going for anything less is settling. The conquests of the capitalist spirit haven't been merely in the industrial or political realms. They extend into our education, our businesses, and even our families. 
We've forgotten the goal of satisfaction, and instead we strive for superiority, even at great cost to ourselves, our families, and our communities. We allow dissatisfaction to guide our production, consumption, and accumulation of wealth. There was a time, Weber notes, when workers recognized the power of doing the same work in less time. Because they were being paid for the work they got done, workers happily went home early with the same pay for the job. But employers, they saw this as the opportunity for more work to be done for the same pay. They changed the way work was compensated so that it was an exchange of time rather than of value. And we live the consequences of this innovation every day. Social theorist Barbara Adam puts it this way, quote, When time is money, then any unused time is money lost. This means any time that machinery is not running is money lost. Any time that paid workers are not productive is money lost. Any time that shops are not open is money lost in terms of potential sales and opportunities. When this approach to time is combined with the assumption that time is a neutral, decontextualized resource, the logical conclusion is a move towards the 24-hour society where people are servicing machines and working productively night and day so as to use the facilities to their full capacity and where shops are open around the clock every day of the week throughout the year so as not to miss out on any potential business opportunity. I didn't set out to build a business that made six or seven figures per year. I was hoping for maybe a few hundred dollars per month blogging while my brand new baby slept. Once I built the business to where it was earning six figures per year, I wasn't sold on building a team or generating multiple six or seven figures. When I first met my husband, I was probably working 15 hours per week and making really good money. But I got swept up in the incentives to do more, be more, have more. I looked around and saw what others were accomplishing, and I decided that I wanted that too. There are many days now when I wish I had that business back, the one that did about $150,000 per year on 15 hours per week. There are days I wish I didn't know that time is money and that unused time is wasted money. What would my life be like if I had those extra 9,000 hours that I filled to overflowing in the last nine years? I don't know. I don't dwell on it. And I'm glad I've gotten to experience the things I have in the last decade. It allows me to do what I do today. Without having built what I built, I wouldn't be able to see the system the way I see it today. But what I do know is that I don't have to do more than meets my needs if I don't want to. And whether I want to is something to be carefully considered in light of the economic forces that bear down on me. Our production agency doesn't have to constantly grow to be successful. We can enjoy the extra time we have instead of squeezing more and more work into our limited capacity. The squeeze is a race, a sprint to fit more and more into a business or a life. It's a test of wills to see who can keep the pace for as long as possible. As Anne Helen Peterson puts it, the only way to make it all work is to employ relentless focus to never, 
ever stop moving. Have the choices I've made about life and work turned me into a perpetual motion machine? And what, at the end of the day, is this machine actually producing? Am I doing work that satisfies me or work that satisfies an algorithm? Am I using my time in a way that sustains me or am I using my time to get ahead? And does getting ahead mean climbing over others to get a slightly larger piece of a pie that will never satiate my hunger? I desperately want to answer Adrian Marie Brown's question, are you satisfiable, with a resounding yes. But I'm not there yet. My weekdays are carefully divided up, each hour dedicated to a precise use in order to fulfill both professional and personal ambitions. The weekend often fills me with a strange sort of distress. There is so much I could do with that time, so much I want to use that time for, but there never seems to be enough time to actually accommodate it all. I think some of this is just life, of course, the growing realization as I creep into middle age that there won't be enough time for everything. I'll have to continue to squeeze in as much as I can to experience even half of it, or have to make choices about what I care about most so that I don't lose the beauty of the experience in all the squeezing. It feels like the choice is to either squeeze it in or else it gets squeezed out. Catherine May's book, Wintering, is a sort of meditation on the value of hunkering down. She captures how seasonal the need to slow down and retreat inward can be. She writes, I used to think that these were wasted days, but now I realize that's the point. Beautiful things happen in the wasted time, the time you're not scheduling social media posts or answering emails or reading very important books or planning your next launch. Sure, sometimes those beautiful things are ideas, But healing, rest, savoring, those are beautiful too. I think my biggest takeaway from this deep dive into the intersection of time and money has been that time is not a thing to be used. Time is something to be experienced. I lose connection with that experience when I'm trying to squeeze more and more into a decontextualized block of time. When I know that time isn't something to be used, I can let go of the idea that unused time is wasted money. I can recognize that the potential of any hour isn't how many tasks I can cram into it, but instead, satisfaction. May puts it this way, quote, I didn't feel that the two should be in conflict, achieving your potential and not being completely miserable. Happiness is the greatest skill we'll ever learn. It is not a part of ourselves that should be hived off into a dark corner, the shameful territory of the willfully naive. What else could time be, if not money? What if time is happiness? What if time is care? What if time is intimacy? I don't think happiness, care, or intimacy are susceptible to the squeeze. They don't operate at frenetic paces. They aren't easily compressed into smaller containers. When those values become the real incentive, it's hard to keep pushing yourself to do more and more. 
If what works is helping you think differently about time, money, and how you're navigating the 21st century economy, please share the show with a friend. The easiest way to do that is through Podlink. You can find the show at pod.link slash whatworks, and that page will allow anyone you share the show with to easily open their favorite podcast app and start listening. That's pod.link slash whatworks. What Works is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. This episode was edited by me, Tara McMullen, and Marty Seafeld. Our executive producer is Sean McMullen. What Works is recorded and produced on the ancestral homelands of the Susquehannock people. The Yellow House is located on the unceded land of the Katunaha Nation. <laughs>